Hello, and welcome back to Our Foundations. Today, we are going to get back to the broad topic of government and politics. The content for this episode will be mostly on the topics of divisive politics and the PC culture. It's going to cover the situation we're in today. So we have covered most of the historical aspects and the origins of government money and education, as well as the origins of our current systems we live under and what that's brought us to today. And so now I want to take this episode and the following two episodes and cover what we're stuck with, what this has done and the effect of this on our society as a whole. So to begin with, with divisive politics and the PC culture, I'm talking about the types of issues and controversies that you're not supposed to talk about. So things like abortion and gun control and racism and all this kind of stuff that is basically taboo. And we're going to try to figure out why this is and why these issues can't be discussed and what are we missing out by not being able to do that. You may kind of think of this episode as a two-parter with this one on government being part one and one, two episodes from now will be part two when I cover the educational aspect. And this is because most of the issues and most of the ways that people think and discuss things are that way because of the way they've been educated because of the education system. And we're going to cover that aspect of it in that episode. So next week will be an episode on money in our current state as far as finances go and the state of the dollar and the national debt and our debt culture in general, well, basically everything on money. But the one after that, we'll get back to education and it will be kind of the flip side of today's argument. It will be a very good companion to this because there are aspects that they meld from both sides. You have the educational aspect and how people got to where they are today, and that's mainly their education. Why do people think the way they think? Why are they not aware of certain things? And we'll cover that. So today, we're focusing more on the issues themselves and the overwhelming issue here is mainly that our culture is more based on feelings and emotions today than it is on logic and rational thinking. The debate has basically devolved into emotional outbursts. We get very riled up about stuff, very upset about stuff. We feel very strongly about things. And these types of emotions and feelings and outbursts are, they're kind of promoted in our culture. People like that. When you put a controversial tweet on Twitter, a lot of people freak out and people on your side are sending lots of likes and lots of retweets and lots of comments and people on the other side are freaking out and yelling at you and cussing you out. And people enjoy that. I think it's the entertainment aspect of that. But that's what goes really well. If you put out a tweet, for example, or a Facebook post or whatever social media platform you want to use here or just have a conversation with someone in person, you know, if you're into that kind of thing, which is not as popular nowadays. But 
if you bring up something along the lines of what we're talking about today, some of this controversial stuff in a conversation or in a post, if you approach it from a rational perspective and a logical perspective and kind of just lay out a basic and factual argument, usually you don't really get a lot of response from that. There's not a lot of debate there. There's not a lot of comments there. There's really just not much going on. People aren't very interested People are much more interested when they get worked up and it's emotions-based. And that's what our culture is, an emotions-based culture. And that does create some problems. We see that there's a big focus on things like self-esteem, on making sure we don't offend people, making sure we're not passing judgment on somebody. We have the aspect of truth being relative and morality and ethics are personal choices and beliefs, and they really aren't based on any kind of factual information or any kind of logic or reason. People believe that there is no such thing as truth anymore, and that's generally what's taught in the schools, that it's all relative. You know, you believe what you believe, and what is truth to you is truth to you, but but I have my own truth, and you know, that totally defies the definition of the word truth, but that's generally what people are taught nowadays. I was taught that in my ethics class in college. So it's a little interesting. What does that lead to? Well, that leads to the PC culture that we have. That's the obvious result, where it becomes very difficult to even just discuss politics or political theory or religion, money, parenting, educational methods, all this kind of stuff, it's really hard to discuss these things because as soon as it comes up and it comes out that maybe you're a Trump supporter, someone's going to get really mad or someone's going to get very positive for it. Oh, yeah, me too. Way to go, man. Yeah, make America great again. Or it's the same thing on the other side. If you, If someone finds out that you are all about Obama and you love Obama, well, that's going to make some people really mad. That's also going to make some people really happy, but it's going to stir up a little bit of a frenzy when you start talking, even if you just mention those names of kind of very big people in the political realm. Just like if you mention things like socialism or communism, or if you were ever to say something bad about democracy or the Constitution, people forget about that too. So it's just difficult to have any kind of discussion because as soon as you mention something like that, people do start to freak out. You mention religion. There are some people that are very, very anti-religion and just shut off as soon as you say anything. If you use the word Bible or God or anything like that, they just shut down. Conversation's over. And you get the opposite type where you mention the word Bible or God and they start quoting Bible verses to you and talk about their salvation story and it basically totally derails the conversation. But it becomes difficult overall to discuss these types of issues. And if it's difficult to discuss the issues, that means it's nearly impossible to actually debate them. And that's the real issue here, because if you try to debate somebody about some of this stuff, like we talked about, it's emotions-based culture. People freak out. People go all over the place. They go off on you. And any opinions that you have or anything that you say, especially if it's on social media or there's a record of it, 
it can come back to haunt you 10 years down the road. Someone can find a post that you had that said something positive about some corrupt politician then use it against you 10 years later, and you really have no defense. It's like, well, you know, I did say that, but my views have changed. And a lot of people are just going to see that you said XYZ comment and then not listen to you anymore. And you're just totally discounted. So not only is it used against you, but usually people just discount anything else you have to say now because you said this one thing they disagree with. And that doesn't really work out very well for you. So we are incentivized to not say anything controversial, and then that therefore promotes our PC culture. The other aspect that is missing majorly is the aspect of context. So especially when we talk about historical context, it's mostly just unknown. People don't really know where these issues came from, what's the history of these issues, what are the cases that have been decided in the courts about these issues, what are some of the negative aspects of the history of these things. And if you don't understand the context that a debate is taking place in, at least the contents of that debate, something like abortion, for example, where did that come from? What groups were supporting it when it was in its infancy? And what were their goals? That kind of stuff. If you're not aware of that, then you're really way out of context on a debate. You're trying to argue something morally when, as we've already said, morals are viewed as relative in today's culture. You're never going to win an argument on morals or ethics. It's just not going to happen. There's no way you can prove them. We'll go over the theory and the history of that train of thought and that teaching in the education episode. But point for this one is just that when you make an argument and you're debating something along these lines, you can't just say, well, it's wrong or that's immoral and therefore you can't do it or you shouldn't do it because you just can't prove that. There's no factual evidence you can use to prove morality and ethics. So it's just not going to work. So what do you have to fall back on? Well, that's logic and reason. Well, the problem is our culture doesn't really respond well to that. People don't know how to think that way. And the conversation doesn't usually go very far. And so what are you left with? Well, not much of anything. Another aspect that's lacking is the thinking to the second and third tier and fourth tier effects and consequences of these issues Usually people stay on the surface level. So abortion, for example, it's either you are murdering a baby or you are providing women with health care, and that's it. And so if that's where you leave it at, it basically is a moral argument. Either it's wrong to kill a baby or it is wrong to withhold medical care from women. And that's it. It's moral. That's it that just makes it very hard. Like, where do you go from there? Obviously, you're not going to convince anybody that their entire sense of morality and ethics is completely wrong and they have to rethink their entire life. That's probably not going to happen. But if that's as far as you take the argument and you don't really take it any further, then that creates problems too. Well, what if you did make all abortion illegal? Well, what's the effect of that? Where does that lead us? Or what if you made all abortions legal? Where does that take us? What effect does that have? Usually people don't even think that far, but you could think that far and take it to that second tier level, and then you could look at the third tier and fourth tier and who all is affected by this stuff, and 
that really broadens the argument and broadens the discussion and is probably very beneficial if you're actually trying to get somewhere with debating a certain topic or idea or concept. Most people usually aren't trying to get anywhere. They're just trying to convince somebody that they're wrong and that the person talking is right and that's it, which, again, is not very beneficial for society as a whole, but that's what we're stuck with. Let me give you a quote to introduce the next aspect that I wanted to mention, and this one's from the very influential philosopher, along many other titles, Bertrand Russell. He said, I think the subject which will be of most importance politically is mass psychology. Its importance has been enormously increased by the growth of modern methods of propaganda, Of these, the most influential is what is called education. Religion plays a part, though a diminishing one. The press, the cinema, and the radio play an increasing part. It may be hoped that in time, anybody will be able to persuade anybody of anything if he can catch the patient young and is provided by the state with money and equipment. So basically what he's saying there is that Propaganda is used to influence people, and this works best when you do it through education, number one. We'll probably use this quote again um, in our education episode. But number two, religion, that works some, but has a decreasing effect in today's world. But the one that has a large effect, in addition to education, is that of the media, basically. He says cinema and radio and TV. And yes, this is the case, because if someone, let's say the government or some corporation or a foundation or nonprofit, it doesn't matter, any group with power and wealth, if they want to try to manipulate the masses and our culture as a whole and how we view issues and where legislation goes in issues... One of the ways they do that, probably the most common way, is to manipulate the narrative. And so if they can control the narrative, the story of what's getting out there, then they can have a huge impact on society as a whole. That's what Russell was talking about there, about the use of propaganda, and especially in today's world with today's technology, that has a huge role. Now, you don't necessarily need to take over an entire corporation or take over an entire nonprofit or foundation or take over the entire government in order to try to steer it in a certain direction or promote a certain cause. All you need to do is get leverage. Leverage is key. It is the most important aspect when you're talking about manipulating the narrative or controlling society or steering society the way you want to take it. Some examples of leverage would be things like government funding for universities. So if universities are doing things that some politicians in the government don't like, it might just be a handful of politicians. Well, they can threaten to withhold government funds if the college doesn't straighten up and obey the whims of whatever this politician is and whatever they want. This has been used against religious colleges fairly recently, dealing with the transgender, I guess, agenda or transgender rights, whatever you want to call it. And 
multiple colleges were threatened with losing all of their government funding if they did not change their rules and change how they treated transgender students. Another way this works is on the corporate side. So with corporations, number one, they can just contribute to campaigns. That's the obvious one that we all know. And so if a corporation donates a million dollars to some senator's campaign, well, more than likely if the senator gets elected, he's probably going to pass some friendly legislation that impacts that corporation in a positive way. Also, he will probably be willing to hear out the lobbyist for that corporation or for that industry and lend a, I guess, more open ear to what they have to say. Oftentimes, lobbyists are actually the ones that write legislation. After all, they are the experts in an industry. So if there is some healthcare legislation that is going to be passed, the senators or congressmen or president or whoever it is that's pushing a certain bill or legislation, they might go to these industry experts, to the lobbyists, and say, this is roughly what we want, write us something up. Well, when you have people whose whole job is to influence legislation for the benefit of their industry and companies, and you have them actually writing the legislation that governs their industry and their companies, what do you think is going to happen? Like, duh, it's pretty easy to figure out. Another aspect, though, of how corporations can control the the narrative, specifically when we're talking about the media, this gets a little more interesting. Now, probably the clearest example would be that of J.P. Morgan and their interests back during World War I. Before the war, they got together with some other people of similar interests and views and decided that they would try to basically purchase the entire media. And the way they first looked at this was I think they looked at 125 different papers and magazines and media sources, media outlets, to see which ones are the most influential. They decided that there were only 25, and that if they could control those 25 media outlets, that they could control the narrative. And sure enough, they did. They basically bought out and began to control the stories and the feed that came out of these media outlets. Now, this was later investigated by the government because... It came up, I think, in a congressional report, and there was a little bit of hoopla over it because it turned out that J.P. Morgan was financing both sides of the war, and, you know, some people didn't really like that. They're financing the enemy, and then this came out, and it was a big deal. But just an example of how a company that might have a lot of interest, they had a big interest in that war actually happening and us getting into World War One and the war escalating because they were financing pretty much everything. They're financing the defense contractors. They're financing the munitions suppliers. They would finance the recovery effort. This is a lot of money. Many people believe that the reason World War One happened to begin with was a big push by worldwide bankers. We're not getting into all that. But the point is that there are groups and people of interest that do use the media to try to influence public opinion for their own benefit. This shouldn't be big news to you. You should realize this. It's not, not anything new or crazy. That's just what happens. Now, how can they do this in a more covert way? Well, they can do this by purchasing ads in today's world. So in today's world, 
let's say that a defense contractor wants to have a little bit of influence with CBS News, and they specifically don't want CBS to show footage or cover stories about certain drone strikes or bombings in Iraq over a certain period of time because this defense contractor is the one providing those drones and missiles and they don't want it to look bad. They only want them to put forth the stories where, you know, terrorists are killed and it's a great deal and way to go the U.S. And so they can't really just pay CBS $2 million in order to cover up some stories. That's not the way it works and that's not going to go over well. You can't really just buy out CBS. That's not going to happen. But what can they do? Well, what they can do is buy some advertisement slots. So if you've ever wondered why you see commercials for defense contractors when you're watching the nightly news, yeah, if you think about it, like what target audience is the defense contractor reaching during the nightly news? It's your average American. Well, that is not their target audience. Their target audience is key people in usually political roles or lobbyists or people in the industry, it's not very effective to throw a blanket ad over national news to reach these people. There are much more effective ways and much more targeted ways of reaching these people. So then why do they spend millions of dollars on ads to these companies that show the news? Well, Maybe they think that they might have a little extra influence with these organizations if they are providing them with millions of dollars worth of revenue, just like contributing to a political campaign. Well, maybe. I'm not saying definitely, but, you know, it makes sense. So that's another thing to keep in mind when we're talking about manipulating the story, manipulating the narrative. We'll talk about how this is done in the educational field on that episode, so we'll skip that part here. But to wrap up this aspect, the government uses issues, controversial issues, as leverage, both for citizens and for other politicians. So political candidates, they know that if they come out as being, say, anti-abortion, that they are going to get a lot of pro-life support. If they come out with a strong pro-life stance, they are going to win over a bunch of voters. They're also going to really piss off a whole other group of voters. But they can make a calculated decision with these issues. And I've been using abortion as the example because that is a very large one, and I want to be consistent here. But it's all these different things, gun control and the welfare state and government spending and whatever the case may be. The point is that these issues are used, basically weaponized, in order to manipulate the voters. They're also used to manipulate other politicians. So if you have one politician that comes out with a very strong pro-life stance and they're running as a Republican and their opponent, who is neck and neck with them on the Republican ticket, they're not very strong on their pro-life stance. They might have made some comments in the past that actually might make someone believe they might be leaning towards the pro-choice side, or at least might not push the agenda very much. Well, politician number one, who is very pro-life, can then use that from the podium and say, look, this is what I'm going to do. This means a lot to me. I know this means a lot to you as the voters, and I am going to get in there, and I'm going to do something. Look at this other guy. 
You know, he doesn't really care. He doesn't really care at all. He's not going to do anything for you. He is not going to change anything when it comes to abortion legislation. Don't vote for that guy. And the people in the audience are like, yeah, you know, I'm not going to vote for that guy. You know, I like that guy more when it comes to economics and when it comes to the state of our financial situation and our national debt and how we're going to deal with entitlement programs and on and on and on. But he's not very strong pro-life, so I'm not going to vote for him. And this basically can get weaponized against competing politicians. And definitely when you cross the party, when you're talking about a Republican against a Democrat, then this gets thrown across the aisle all the time. But basically these issues are just used as weapons. That's all they are. Yes, many politicians care about some of these issues at times, but more than likely, they are being used as a tool. How much power does one politician have when it comes to issues like the national debt and abortion? Well, not a whole lot. But many voters will hinge their entire philosophy on how they're going to vote in a given election on one issue. And that makes sense. That definitely makes sense. If you believe in the pro-life agenda and someone says they're very pro-life, well, you can see that if they're pro-life when it comes to babies and the abortion issue, they're probably going to be pro-life in general. So they're going to be more supportive of life. And that's a good thing. Maybe they're going to be less involved with interference around the world and if with wars. Maybe they're going to be more focused on providing things like healthcare and things like that. Basically, if they have a positive view on life, then voter X might think that they're going to do something positive in office and do something they agree with. Therefore, they can hinge their vote on the one issue of pro-life or pro-choice, the abortion issue, and basically they believe that that is the philosophy that that politician has. So there are issues like the pro-life, pro-choice one, where people do hinge their vote on who they're going to pick on one issue. And so it becomes a very effective weapon. Now, the last thing I want to mention here would be that of distraction over manipulation. Now, that is the other tool that gets used very often is distracting. It is amusements. So if you look at the etymology of the word amuse, it gets very interesting because the word muse is referring to wit. It's referring to thinking. A muse, historically, was someone that would have funny little quips and make funny little comments that'll make people laugh, but also make them think. They're very witty, and that was what a muse was, and the word muse means more to think. When you add a at the beginning of muse, and you have the word amuse or amuse, that definitionally means not to think, (laughs) and so... Anytime you are dealing with amusements or entertainment, basically, the whole point is that you are not thinking. And so the more an individual or a society can be manipulated into not thinking, then the less they're going to think, the less of a problem they're going to be for those who are trying to push an agenda because they're not really thinking about it. They're not thinking critically. They're not really assessing it. They're just distracted. And that works out really well for people trying to push a certain agenda. Now, the emperors of Rome, 
That is the perfect example of this, because anytime they had unrest, basically what they would do is hold a set of games. And so the people are starting to freak out, and they are getting fed up with the tyranny of a certain emperor, or the taxes, or whatever the case was, and there started to be talk of rebellion and revolt. Well, the emperor would say, hey, next week we're going to have a huge set of games. We're going to have gladiators and chariot races and all this stuff. It's going to be great. Everybody's going to be off work for a whole week. Come celebrate, drink, do whatever you want to do. It's going to be a huge party. Everybody's going to have lots of fun. It'll be great. And all of a sudden, there's no more talk of revolt or revolution because everybody's happy. They are amused. They are distracted. They are not thinking. That's the whole point. Before that, you had the tactic of um, canceling out all debts. This was used as far back as like the ancient Babylonian and Mesopotamian cultures. You see records of this where a new king would come into power, and in order to solidify their power, they wipe out everybody's debts. And everybody loves them. The people rally around this new ruler, and then they, you know, turn into a horrible dictator, usually. But the whole point is that you can throw a bone to the people, you amuse them, you distract them, and then you can manipulate them much easier. So when we're talking about these types of issues, the problem is that, in general, we are intellectually defenseless. So if you don't have the critical thinking skills, you don't have the historical context, you don't have the logical and rational approach to an issue, you don't have any of this stuff, then you're fairly defenseless when it comes to approaching an issue with an intellectually sound viewpoint. And we'll go more on this on the education episode. But when we look at these, I want to look at them from a few different perspectives. So with an issue, it's typically best to look at what the goal is, because the goal is usually the same on both sides of an argument. So usually you just have one goal, no matter which side you're on. So take abortion, for example, it's the rights of an individual. That's the issue. Just one side thinks it's the rights of the woman, and the other side thinks it's the rights of the baby. But it's the same issue. It's protecting an individual's rights. That is the goal. And so it's the same with all these issues. There's usually one goal, just a matter of how do you get there. The other aspect you want to look at is the history. What's the historical context? Where does this come from? That's usually very important. The One of the biggest questions that you want to ask is who benefits? So in this scenario, who wins, who loses? And that usually tells you more than anything else as far as kind of what direction a certain debate is going to take in society and in government and in legislation. And then the last thing you want to ask yourself is what is its effect on governance, on the governance of society, on the governmental system? How does it affect the relation between the individual citizen and society as a whole or the government as a whole? So I want to go through some examples here so I can kind of show this out as to how we can approach these issues and actually get somewhere maybe and reveal things that in general most people aren't really discussing. And that's the problem. So with this framework and with the way we're going to look at this, this is a way to frame the discussion. And that's basically it. It's a starting point. We need to know 
where we're coming from, where the debate has sprung from, how it's connected to different things. We need to know the information, how it connects, and then how to get that across to somebody else and put our views across. How do we do this? And we also need to know what is the trend? So with each one of these issues, I'm going to make a comment like, this is the way it's probably going to go. And what I'm saying is not that we are guaranteed to have all of our guns taken away or we are guaranteed to never have that right taken away. That's not the point. What I'm saying is that this is the way that society is trending. This is the way the argument is trending. This is the way that all these indicators point to where we're going. But that does not mean that this is guaranteed to happen. What we need to do is look at what is the trend, how are things going, what is the direction, and then we can frame our response to that. If we agree with this and it's going towards our side, then we need to get along beside it and we need to push it forward. We need to help it and complement it and get this movement or this cause to continue down that road that it seems to be traveling down currently. However, if it seems to be going in a way that is the opposite of what we believe, then you need to at least recognize that this is the trend it's going towards. You need to recognize the history, recognize the why, recognize the different aspects and pieces and how they fit together so that you can properly form your argument and form your resistance and put up some sort of resistance against that and try to turn the tide and turn the tables. You cannot do that if you don't understand all this other information and how it all connects. And if you don't have the ability to get that out there, if you don't have that rhetoric to explain your idea and clearly present it and bring forth an argument that can potentially turn somebody's opinion, we need to start with the facts, with the information, with the grammar of the problem or the debate. We need to figure out what exactly has happened, what is the real situation, and these are things that we should be able to agree on with people on the other side of the argument. We can all agree that this happened historically. We can all agree that this group was responsible for moving the movement forward, or we can all agree that this is the scientific evidence of whatever the case may be. We need to get this information and these facts down that we agree on and we can present these agreed upon facts, this agreed upon grammar, this information, and then we can progress to, well, what is the interpretation of that? Well, if you don't have the information to begin with, how in the world can you move on to how do we interpret this and how does it work together and how does it all connect? Well, you can't. You have to have the information first. Then you do have to figure out how it all connects, how it all works together, what the trend is, what the history is, what the other side of the argument is. You have to understand all these things, and then you can actually have a debate and a discussion. So I just want to run through some examples of different popular and hot topics and debates that are going on in today's society and kind of run through this method of looking at it, where we look at the history, we look at the, I call that the grammar, so that is 
the information, the facts, uh, what is the historical context? And then we look at the logic of it. Well, how does that all work together, given that this is the history and given that these are the people that are benefiting and given that this is how it changes the relationship between individuals and the state? Well, what does all that mean? How does that work together? Well, you know, generally, they're all going to point towards the same direction. And then we know what the trend is and where it's going and how this debate is progressing and evolving. That's where I'm going to leave you. But that's just the beginning. So this is just a method and a system and some examples of how do you at least get to that point so that you can actually progress the topic, progress the debate, try to move forward in the direction and towards the cause that you believe in. We'll use abortion to begin with because that's the example I've been using. So again, the goal is that we want to protect individuals' rights. That's the goal on both sides. You just have the issue of, is it the individual rights of the mom or is it the individual rights of the baby? Well, the problem with abortion is that usually people just approach it from the moral aspect, which is totally understandable. If you're taking away someone's medical rights, that would be a moral issue, um, probably on both sides. If you're talking about killing or ending a life, that's also a moral issue. So it's obvious that it goes to a moral place. But the problem, like I said before, is you can't prove your case based on morals. So where do you go from there? Well, we do know that biologically, scientifically, life begins at conception. And that has been known in the scientific world for decades. That's also was known during the Roe v. Wade case. It wasn't an issue of when life begins, when the life cycle begins, because at conception, the life cycle starts. There's already the DNA makeup of what that individual is going to turn into if it ends up progressing to being a baby, being born and growing up. All those decisions, what hair color it's going to have, what eye color it's going to have, personality traits, all that stuff is already encoded in the DNA, and that is there at conception. So the question is not, when does life begin? The question is, when does personhood begin? And that's the real issue, because you could say that personhood begins with life. And if the issue is protecting the rights of a person, then you really need to know when you classify someone as a person. You might say that they're not a person until they can actually support themselves, maybe outside of a woman's body. So I think that's, I think the youngest is like 21 weeks-ish that a baby has survived and lived outside of um, the mom's body. And so maybe that's the cutoff point, or maybe it's when they're born, or maybe it's when they can think for themselves, whatever the case may be. You have to figure it out. When is a baby an actual person? person. When does that happen? And personhood is the main issue here. So even on the moral side, people get carried away with life and ending life. It's not about when life begins. That's been decided for a long time. It's about personhood. When do you attribute personhood to a baby? And that's the debate. So overall, from my perspective, you have the issue of either if you're wrong about this. So if you decide one way or the other, and you're wrong. Let's say you make abortion totally illegal, but you, you know, are technically wrong. We find out later that that was not the right call. Well, what did you do? Well, you withheld medical services that women wanted, and you withheld that from them. You did not even allow them to have that, or if they did, they had to do it in an unsafe way. That's bad. 
So that's one side. If we were wrong about it and we made abortion illegal, you withheld medical services and people weren't as safe. Let's go on the other side. What if you made all abortions legal and you broadened the scope of the abortion issue? Well, what if you're wrong about that? You find out later you're wrong. You shouldn't have done that, that that was wrong. What did you do? Well, if you're wrong about legalizing abortion, that means that you killed millions of babies. So the issue is that if you look at that objectively, if you're wrong on one side, you withheld medical care. If you're wrong on the other side, you murdered innocent babies. Probably murdering innocent babies is a little worse than withholding medical care. So regardless of what your moral view is on the issue or when you think personhood actually starts, you can't prove these things. You can't prove morals. You can't prove what exact day personhood starts on. You just can't do it. So if you really want to play it safe, I'm sorry, but you've got to fall more on the pro-life side. And that's just the objective way of looking at it. And Yes, that does infringe on a woman's right that's carrying the baby because they're having to do this. They don't want to. It takes a toll on their body. You know, what about the extra circumstances of things like rape and incest and all these other things that do come up very, very small percentage, but they are there. You know, How do you treat those? Well, we're not going to deal with that. But the point is you can look at this issue more objectively without focusing on the morals of it, without focusing on the life aspect by just objectively looking at both sides, and that's probably very beneficial. Well, I said that you should look at the goal, and you should look at the historical context. So when did abortion really start to take hold? Who's the biggest player here? It is Planned Parenthood. Well, how did Planned Parenthood get started? Well, it got started by Margaret Sanger. She founded the American Birth Control League and started off with birth control. Well, okay, so who was this Sanger lady? Well, she was a public speaker. She was connected with some very influential societies in New York. She was a progressive in the medical field. So you might think, yeah, hey, this is good stuff. Well, until you find out that her public speaking was often at KKK rallies because she was very racist. And her connections to New York society that was very influential was the eugenic society because of her racist beliefs. And she believed in the idea of eugenics, of breeding a better human race. And how do you do that? Well, you choose who gives birth and who doesn't, who lives, who dies. We're going to do a whole episode on eugenics. That should be very interesting. I'll get into this more than there. But the point is that that's all that started. And after World War II, when that came around, basically people didn't look so kindly on eugenics. So there was a flip here, and they no longer publicly were connected with the eugenics society, and the American Birth Control League changed their name to Planned Parenthood. And they switched from birth control, which wasn't as effective as they wanted and focused much more on abortions. And there's a lot to go in there. Uh, when Ben Carson was running for president, he had an interview where he actually mentioned this exact thing here. And I don't think the interviewer was very sympathetic to what he had to say. They, they looked at him like he was spouting off a conspiracy theory. But this is history. This is the historical context. Look it up. It's not anything hidden. It's nothing crazy. That's just the way it is. And... You kind of need to know that to know 
how did the abortion issue first get propagated and where did its support first come from? Who was behind that? Well, it helps to kind of know that backstory a lot more than what I just said. You'll have to look into it yourself, but you should be aware of that if this is a debate that you're going to have. Now, the next question is who benefits? Well, where's the money? You follow the money. That's always the rule. Well, who benefits in this situation if you, let's say you make all abortions legal? Who benefits? Well, obviously Planned Parenthood and other organizations like that because they can now do more abortions, either get more government money or charge more money to individuals or get more money from donations. However they want to get their money, they're going to get more of it because they are going to be doing more abortions. And you can go to the issue of allowing the body parts of the aborted babies to be used for scientific research, and they get reimbursed for some of those costs for that too. There's a lot of sources of funds there. And so the financial incentive definitely goes towards making abortion completely legal. Now, who benefits if you make it illegal, financially at least? Well, not much of anybody. You get some financial contributions to campaigns for some pro-life causes, maybe some religious organizations, especially like the Catholics have traditionally been very pro-life and very big proponents of that. And so maybe a few politicians get some more money, but in general, follow the money and it definitely says pro-abortion, pro-choice. That's the way it's going to go. And The history of it is that was the push for the movement behind abortion. You look at the effect on governance. So how does the relation between the individual and the governmental system, how does that change if you make abortions illegal? Well, all of a sudden you have a whole lot of women that are really pissed off and a lot of people in the pro-choice movement that are not happy at all. And it totally ruins their relationship with the state. Not only does it ruin it, they are actually going to secretly go and probably get abortions on their own through unregistered clinics or taking pills or whatever the heck you can do to cause that. They're probably going to start doing that. It's not safe. You basically create a decent bit of unrest. You know, that's not very good. So if you did not abort the baby then the baby should grow up more than likely into a grown person that can think for themselves and, more importantly, vote for themselves and act within society for themselves. Now, more than likely, the child is not going to be told that, well, I would have aborted you if I would have had the chance. I didn't really want you, but we're stuck with you anyway because that's what the government told us. No, they're probably not going to be told that. Even if they are crappy parents, most parents are still not going to say that to their child. So the child is probably not going to know that. However, there still is the effect that it was an unwanted pregnancy, an unwanted child that the mother was forced to carry to term. They may give it up for adoption, or it may just have more of a struggle growing up as a kid and their surroundings and their relationship with their parents or parent. Another aspect to consider would be that typically, statistically, individuals that grow up in a home where they feel like they don't belong or they feel like they're unwanted or it's an unstable family unit or whatever the case may be, whatever the reasons that the mother wanted to abort the pregnancy to begin with but ended up not doing it or maybe put it up for adoption, Whatever the course is that that individual's life takes early on, 
however that plays out. If it is something that is disruptive and that is not fairly stable, then statistically there is more of a chance that they will be involved in negative activity as far as the state's concerned, criminal activity, or maybe not perform as well in school. Usually test scores are considered to be much lower. Rates of going to college are lower. Incomes, once they get their jobs, are lower. So it doesn't really produce very, let's say, as high-quality citizens, for lack of a better way of putting it. Not that anyone that grew up in a dysfunctional family is going to be ruined. That's definitely not the case. But statistically, when they do surveys and compare people of certain situations to people of other situations, usually ones that grow up in a single-parent household or a low-income household or with parents that are on food stamps and Medicaid and all these other government programs, welfare and so forth, typically, statistically, those children don't do as well in school and the individuals don't do as well when they get into the workforce. Not that all of them do horribly, but statistically, there are fewer of them. The percentages are lower than the rest of society. As far as how the view of government is concerned, you are going to create many negative feelings there. Now, what if you made abortions completely legal? Well, it's the exact opposite. So all those people that were pissed off at you are now going to be very happy with you. It's wonderful. We can make our own decisions. And if you choose life, then that is your choice. And if you choose not to, then that is our choice. And everybody's happy. Well, yes, you're going to get some religious organizations and some other groups that will be very pissed off at the government. But typically, those are not the groups that are going to cause nearly as much unrest. So that's positive. You're also aborting more babies, and so those babies aren't growing up in an unwanted situation where you have that issue there, and so basically you just get rid of them, so they're just a non-issue. And so the impact as far as how do you change the relationship between the individual and the state would probably slant towards the side of being pro-choice. Well, as we looked at this, you saw that the history points towards pro-choice, who benefits points towards pro-choice, and the effect on governance points towards pro-choice. So which way do you think that's going to go? Well, probably pro-choice. That's just the way it is. And so again, get rid of the moral argument. It is not going to apply. Look at the goal, the history, who benefits, and the effect it has, and that will give you your answer. Now, let me be clear. That does not mean that society is guaranteed to be pro-choice, worldwide, period, end of story. That's not necessarily the case. For example, the case I laid out at the beginning of this argument was that when you look objectively and you want to do a risk assessment, then you will see that it is far riskier to have a completely pro-choice agenda versus a pro-life agenda. And so that is a legitimate, objective argument, and there are others. There is the moral argument, although, like I've said, I would not rely on that. That is not a very good and solid and productive way to argue the point, but there are multiple objective ways of arguing it, and it could be decided that the pro-life stance is the one that a country will take. That is definitely possible. However, 
if you look at the trends and look at how society is going and how they've gone in the past and what are these influencing factors, it seems to lean more towards the pro-choice side. Now, again, this doesn't mean that if you're pro-life, you totally give up and walk away. No, if you're pro-life and that's what you believe, then you should definitely fight for what you believe in. There's nothing wrong with that. That is actually an honorable thing to do and something that you should do. However, when you do this, you should do it in a way that is actually productive and that will probably get you somewhere. And that is by engaging in a more objective argument and debate that's based on facts and objective assessments and not based on feelings and emotions and your morals or your religious beliefs. Look at gun control. That's a really big one nowadays. Every time there's a mass shooting, we want to get rid of all the guns. Well, again, the goal is the same, that you want to limit gun violence and gun deaths. Well, that makes sense. It's a good goal to have. Well, how do you do that? Well, it's either with less guns or more guns. And so those are kind of opposite opinions here, like always. And so the question is, Well, what's the history of this? Well, the history, especially in America, goes back to the Constitution and the Second Amendment, which says that citizens have the right to arm themselves. The purpose of this is to defend themselves against a tyrannical government that may come into power. Now, in the context of the Second Amendment, when it was written, what the people thought at the time, this was not only geared towards the individual citizens, but also the states. So the state could have a militia that rivaled the federal military. They had the right to have equal firepower because they wanted to be able to defend their sovereignty against the federal state. And so that's where that comes from. It has absolutely nothing to do with hunting rights or personal protection against criminals. That has absolutely nothing to do with it. It had to do with providing defense and a deterrent against a tyrannical government. Well, that's not really being discussed nowadays, and that really has nothing to do with the national debate going on now, at least in the narrative that you hear in the media. So that's the history. Who benefits? Well, if you have less guns, then I don't know. Who benefits financially? I really have no idea. I'm sure someone does, but not in a huge way. What if you have more guns and you allow citizens to have all the guns they want? Well, the arms manufacturers will benefit. People are buying more guns. People are buying more ammunition. And this is good for business. So the money's pro-guns, the history is pro-guns. What about the effect on governance? So on one hand, you might say that if there's more guns, then there is more of a threat to government, that, hey, they will keep the government in check. The reality is if people have pistols and assault rifles and shotguns, that is not going to keep the U.S. government in check. That's nothing. Look at Waco, for an example. They had assault rifles, they had pistols, and they basically all got slaughtered. I think there are four or five survivors or something, and that's it. So that's not going to do it. If you really want to defend yourself against the government nowadays, you need things like tanks and aircrafts. And if you're on the ocean, you need some sort of naval fleet. You need a lot more than just some assault rifles and pistols. So that's probably not going to have much of a negative effect between the individual and government. It would actually have a very positive effect because people are happy. They feel safe against the government, and they're happy that they get to have their guns if they want them. And so you piss off a few people that get really scared and worried every time there's a mass shooting. But the reality is, 
you're taking guns away, you know, if you go that route and you take guns away, you're taking them away from people that have registered guns and are purchasing them legally. You're not taking them away from the criminal element. Nowadays with 3D printing as well, you can 3D print pistols. I'm not positive if you can do it with assault rifles. I know you can 3D print pieces and build one yourself. So that's really hard to completely shut down on the criminal front, at least. So all in all, all this leans towards the side of we will have guns. We will have the ability to have guns and arm ourselves when it comes to pistols and assault rifles and shotguns and things like that. Small arms, basically. Now, for the gun debate, there is a flip side of the argument. So the stance that I have taken on what I just presented is the stance of a more individualistic society, a more libertarian society. I specifically was giving examples of America and the Second Amendment, for example, is in the U.S. Constitution. However, when we actually look at reality and we see how societies are trending and countries are trending, everything's trending more towards a communal view or a global view, an international view, a socialist view, this is very different than being individualistic and libertarian. This is a very different leaning. Now, when you take that into account, then the story is actually a little bit different. So if you look historically in those types of societies and nations, then typically, historically, what happens is the government actually does take away everybody's guns so that the government can have more control and that is sometimes presented as they have more control so that they can protect their citizens better and run society smoother, or more likely they take away guns and then they start implementing their more draconian dictatorship policies where it's a totalitarian regime that takes over and does whatever they want and the people have no means to really meaningfully resist, is usually the way historically it's happened. Uh, but, you know, it could technically happen in a more positive light where a government takes the guns away from the people, only gives them to military and police, and that that may be the route that it would take. But that is the route that it takes in a more collectivist society, in a more socialist society. And that is the way the world is trending. So who benefits under this scenario? Well... If there is a very strict policy of taking away all guns, then there probably will legitimately be less crime. That is likely, and that could actually happen, even though oftentimes the tighter gun control gets, it really doesn't have much of an effect on crime. But potentially we could say that could happen. And so if that did happen, then the state would be paying less on prosecuting and on tracking down people involved in gang shootings and homicides and that kind of stuff. So maybe the state would be saving some money in all these costs that they wouldn't have to spend because there is less violence in the society because there are no guns. Now, I don't necessarily believe that's the way it would play out, but it's possible. So let's throw that out there. But I think the biggest aspect of who benefits is not financial we still have the aspect that the gun manufacturers would be losing money and they would benefit much more if people were allowed to buy guns. However, again, in a more socialist society, the focus is not on how well these big corporations are doing, especially gun manufacturers. Usually in these societies, 
the state and the individuals with these beliefs are much more apt to be very against a corporate agenda and be very against gun manufacturers specifically. They often want to sue gun manufacturers and hold them accountable. And so I don't think anybody in this scenario under these types of beliefs and ideologies would really care if the gun manufacturers are making less money. So although they would benefit less, no one in that type of society really cares. And actually, people would probably be happy if the gun manufacturers were going out of business. Now, they wouldn't because the government still needs guns, but they wouldn't be making the same profits and typically any more socialist environment that is a positive thing to the people and to the state. So then who benefits? Like I said, it's probably not financial. The likely benefit will be the state because they amass much more control. They're basically guaranteed that there will be no meaningful resistance against them no matter what they do. And they have much more control over the violence that their citizens can commit depending on how well they're able to keep out the criminal element. And that is the big debate there. But Assuming they can keep that at bay, then they're going to have a much tighter grip on their society. And again, if there is some kind of unrest, it's almost guaranteed not to end up in some kind of meaningful revolt. That's almost impossible under this scenario. So who benefits? Well, the state very much benefits. And who benefits in the other go around of let's make all the guns legal in a socialist society? Well, Pretty much the gun manufacturers are the only ones that benefit, and no one really cares about them. And the people themselves don't really care as much if they lean more towards the progressive agenda and the socialist agenda agenda, because they want to put all their faith into the state and let the state handle society, run society, take care of things, the military police, and what, what have you. So they don't really care as much to have their guns taken away. So, yeah, as far as who benefits, it again, leans more towards the side of banning guns, if you're looking at it from this perspective. Now, the final thing we look at is the relationship between the individual and the state. So how does that relationship change in a, let's say, socialist society if the guns are allowed to be purchased by anybody? Well, there isn't really much of a change. That just happens and there might be a mass shooting every now and then or a murder every now and then that people freak out about and don't like but in general I mean there's nothing that really changes between that relationship between the individual and the state Uh, it's unlikely that there actually will be some sort of armed revolt that's you know unlikely unlikely to begin with however it does add a slight check on government I guess but that's about it So what about if you banned all guns, then how does that change the relationship? Well, again, in a more collectivist society, in a more socialist society, there actually is an improvement of that relationship because most of the people in those societies actually want the guns to be gone. Most people lean in that direction. Most people want the state to handle those duties and to be in control of those things, and they don't believe that individuals should have that ability and have that risk. And so, yeah, so how does that relationship change? Well, if anything, it's actually strengthened because the people have a higher view of the government. They are glad that the government is doing something to keep them safe and to take the guns off the streets and to limit crime. That's a wonderful thing. And, of course, they would have to put more faith in the government because now they're the only ones with the guns. And so it probably strengthens the case. 
So if you wrap all that up, then if you're looking from a more socialist point of view instead of the way we looked originally, like the original American libertarian point of view, from this socialist point of view, actually historically guns are taken away and with who benefits, it leans more towards guns being taken away. And when you look at how does the relationship between the individual and the state change, it also leads more towards guns being taken away. So when you take these two arguments together and mesh them and assess that, you see that it really depends on the type of society that you're looking at in a country or in a region. If it is one that leans more individualistic and libertarian, more on that side, then you probably will have at least small arms being legal and individuals having them up to probably assault rifles, probably nothing beyond that without some sort of special permit or something like that. But if you're in a society that leans more towards the progressive socialist agenda or communal society, then they will probably go more towards having no guns at all. And that is the most likely scenario on that side. So it's interesting. It kind of depends on the type of society as to which way that likely leans. But again, that doesn't mean that it's a guarantee. So there's still hope no matter which side you're on. And you should still defend your case. But again, defend your case objectively with facts and with legitimate, logical, and rational arguments and perspectives, not with emotions. Don't point out one mass shooting and say, for this reason, we need to take away everybody's guns. No, that's not really going to hold up. That's not a very logical argument. One event or even two events or five events is not enough to say, let's make this drastic change in society. And same with on the other side. If one criminal kills an unarmed man in the street, you can't point to that one scenario or say it's a mass shooting. Again, you can't point to that one scenario and say, well, what if these people had guns and could have defended themselves? Then this would have been totally different and the criminal wouldn't have gotten away with it. And so that's why we need more guns. Well, again, you can't just pick and choose a few random scenarios and say, this is what I'm resting my entire case on. No, you need to be more broad about it. You need to look at it. You need to have the historical aspect. You need to be aware of who is benefiting, who is losing, who has the leverage in these different situations. And be aware of all this stuff and come from that angle that's logical, that's rational, that's objective. You're going to get a lot further. Yeah. What about... Going along those lines, what about war? So that's a big deal because we want to make the world a better place. That's always the goal. How do you do that? Well, you either go to war and overthrow dictators or you have no wars and you have peace. Well, you know, I could see both sides to that. Well, so that's the goal. What's the history here? Well, when you start looking at the history of war, that's where it gets a little interesting. If you go to World War One, you have stupid Woodrow Wilson, probably my least favorite president, and he basically wants to create a one-world government. That's where his sympathies lie. He was the one that created the idea for the League of Nations, wanted America in it, pushed us for it, and the American people basically said no and refused to give up any sovereignty there. But I digress. The point is, he wanted to get us into that war. You have the deal with the Lusitania was a very big factor where there was a British ship that was going into the waters that were in the war zone, 
And the enemy was saying, do not send your ships here. Do not send citizens here. Because there were American citizens on this British ship that were going through this war zone. And the subs of the enemy were having to defend themselves. And they couldn't tell what kinds of ships were there. And they kept saying, you know, this ship is going to get destroyed. There were actually flyers that got put out before the Lusitania set sail on their final voyage. Not literally set sail, but you get the point. And the brochures said, do not get on this boat. It will probably get blown up. It's going through a war zone. And guess what happened? It went through the war zone and it got blown up. But that was then used as an excuse to rally the people in America to stir up the war spirit and get people going. And that had a lot to do with getting in the war. The other excuse was a telegram that was intercepted where there was a deal proposed by Germany to Mexico where if they allied together, then Germany would help Mexico take back over the property that they lost a long time ago, things like Texas and California and that kind of stuff. But the reality is, how much of a threat did Mexico pose to the U.S. at the time? Not much of any. Uh, kind of an excuse. So why did we go to World War One? I had mentioned earlier that some people say it was the bankers that were wanting to finance the war and then finance the rebuilding. You have people like Woodrow Wilson in charge. Look at the peace talks afterwards where the Germans were literally starving to death even after the war was over and the people in charge refused to lift the blockade and send them food just basically out of spite and out of revenge. It, it wasn't pretty. None of it was. Well, well, why did you go into World War II? Well, start doing some research on the Pearl Harbor event. Why did that happen? Why did Japan attack us? Did we stir them up in any way? Were we poking them and prodding them for years before that? Yeah, we kind of were. Did anyone know about that attack? Well, look into that yourself. It's a little bit interesting. Look at some false flag operations. So what about the people that wanted to get involved in Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis? Well, you did have Operation Northwoods, where there was a plan that went all through the military, all through the ranks, CIA, everybody was involved, got all the way up to the president before he said, well, no, we're not doing this. But Operation Northwoods basically said that they were going to take a plane, put American citizens on it. Then they were going to secretly... Well, it was going to fly to Cuba, but secretly it was going to land, let off the passengers, and get switched out for a drone that would then take off and finish the flight to Cuba with a transponder radio on it. And at the same time, what we would do is build a fighter plane and make it look like a Cuban fighter, a MiG, and what would happen is this drone, as it entered Cuban airspace, the fake Cuban fighter plane would come up and basically destroy it. But right before it got destroyed, you'd have this message that got sent out from the pilot saying, you know, don't attack. We've got citizens on board, blah, blah, blah. And then boom, you know, and it's gone. Well, then we can use that as the excuse to go to war with Cuba. And that was the plan. It was a legitimate plan. And it would have gone into effect if the president didn't say no. So that doesn't look too good. What about weapons of mass destruction for going to Iraq that, well, they, you know, they actually weren't there. There were no weapons of mass destruction. There may have been previously because we might have sold them some, but they weren't there anymore. That was not really the reason why we went to war. What about Afghanistan after 9-11 and Al-Qaeda? 
well, if you really look into that, Afghanistan was not the biggest player in that. They were not the ones that were the biggest supporters there. And look into how Al-Qaeda really got big, and ISIS for that matter. Who was supporting them? Yeah, we, we had a hand to play in all that. But basically, look at the historical context of war and our main wars, and it doesn't look too pretty. Look at who benefits. Well, anytime there's war, the government of whoever is perpetrating the war and whoever is defending against the war always is going to have more control. A lot of times they nationalize certain industries, they take a lot of control, they go into a large amount of debt, do a lot of spending, and usually after the war, they give back some of that control, but never go back to the point they were before the war. So government always expands during wartime, so that is a big benefit to government. What about the defense contractors? Yes, obviously, huge benefit to them financially. What about the bankers? Like I said, yes, they can finance the entire war and finance all the rebuilding afterwards. They make bank. It is a great deal for them. So who benefits? All these people benefit. What about if you had peace? Who benefits? Um, Well, less people die. So maybe you have more consumers in the economy. I, I think that's the best you can do. But most people that are dying are the people in these third world countries anyway. And so they're not really a part of the economy. So that's kind of a weak argument there. Yeah, not a lot of benefit for peace. What about the effect between the individual and the governmental system? Well, the effect is that usually it stirs up patriotism. So people become even more patriotic and more rallied behind the government. You get more recruits that volunteer to join the military. And yeah, so that's a positive thing. So it looks like historically, people want war to happen. Wars have happened. Wars have been manipulated into place. Look at who benefits. Well, everybody benefits when there's war. Look at the effect on governance and the individual in relation to that. And well, there are benefits to war. So what are we going to have? We are going to have war. We're not going to have national peace. It's never going to happen. Duh. Just look at the facts. So again, it's not about the morality of war or why we get into these wars or what the second and third tier effects are on an economy after a war, because guess what? There actually are some really bad effects. There is something called the broken window fallacy. Just because you break a window doesn't mean you're benefiting the economy. Look into that one. That one is the easiest and clearest example of how the idea of how war spurs an economy and increases the economic activity and is good for an economy and good for a nation. Yeah, that is not true. But I digress. So I think that's all we're going to get into. I was going to mention racism. That's another aspect. And I guess I'll mention that here. So you have racism and that is an issue But usually, again, people focus on the morality of it, and they go back to slavery and that kind of stuff. Well, that's probably not the biggest motivator historically. The goal, obviously, is to not have racism. Kind of, obviously, because there actually is another goal to be extremely racist, and that's how we plan the human species. So the goal, I guess, would be to not have outright racism, maybe. That one's a little harder to define the goal here. But if you look at the history of it, you see things like slavery. You see things like the eugenics movement. You see 
lots of examples of how race has been used against people just because of the color of their skin or their nation of origin. And so historically, that doesn't look too good. What about who benefits from racism? Well, that one gets a little interesting as well, because you would think that no one really benefits either way. But the reality is, when you look into it, when there is a group, a minority group, that is viewed as being treated in a racist manner, usually they get more attention by the government. So you have things like affirmative action, for example, or integration of the school system, or things like this. And so at first hand, you would think, well, hey, people are benefiting. The society as a whole is benefiting from this. And you have these minority groups that are getting a leg up because they deserve it and the government's helping them out. Well, let me um, give one random quote here that is a little interesting from Jonah Goldberg. He said, if there is ever a fascist takeover in America, it will come not in the form of stormtroopers kicking down doors, but with lawyers and social workers saying, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And that's exactly the situation here. If you really look into things like welfare, look into affirmative action, like the hiring rates and how fast African-Americans were getting hired and the increase of that before affirmative action and after, it actually slowed down afterwards. What about integrations into the schools? Well, there are many who believe that that was actually not such a good thing, didn't really benefit people very well. It totally tore down the idea of having a neighborhood school because now you're busing kids to different schools all around the county and lots of issues there. There are lots of effects. Look at, like I said, welfare. That's something where... Just think about it. If you are subsidizing being poor, so if you are poor, you get money from the government. And so if the government is paying people to be poor, what do you think people are going to do? Well, there are plenty of people that are just going to choose to take the money, and it makes more sense. What if you get paid more by the government to not work than you would at least going out and getting a part-time job? You're probably not going to work because you make more money that way. It's, it's obvious. It makes sense. When you subsidize something, that activity increases. That's just the way it is. So welfare is not going to stop the poverty issue. Never going to happen. Rent controls is another one like that. That it, The economic effect is not what the stated goal is. It just doesn't work out that way. So in the end, what happens? Well, when you're looking at who benefits... Well, the government benefits because they are creating leverage. We talked about how groups use leverage to influence other groups, usually society, usually us as citizens. Well, if the government has this leverage where they have these government checks that they're sending out, and if you don't obey what they say to do and you don't follow the incentive models, then you're probably not going to get those checks. So that is leverage. So basically, the government has more leverage, more control. And these people that are taking this welfare money of whatever sort it is, and no matter what minority group they are, or even if it's not, if it's just white trash in a trailer park, those people do exist. And so it's not just a racial issue, but we're talking about racism here, so that's what I'll stick with. But whoever's receiving this government aid is probably in a worse off position. They're not 
motivated to better themselves, to get out on their own, to start off with a part-time job, get whatever they can get to make a buck and improve their life because they probably have free housing and they get food stamps and they're getting a check in the mail and, you know, blah, 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 free medical care, whatever. They're getting all this stuff. So why try really hard? Why risk it? Yeah, so who benefits? That would be the government. Probably benefits a lot more than that group of people. What about the effect on the relationship between the people and the government? Well, the people are going to be much more friendly towards the government because the government is giving them things, obviously. So that is a positive effect. And so with this, you also have the aspect of democracy in general. And we've talked about this before. How does democracy work? It's the majority rules situation. And anytime you have that, the majority of people in any given nation are going to be of the lower class or lower middle class. It's usually the common people make up the majority of a state, of a nation. And so anytime, as a politician, if you tell the common people that they are going to get a bunch of stuff for free, well, they're probably going to vote for you. They probably like that idea. Most people like free stuff. And, you know, even though... Just remember this. Anytime you hear that the government is giving away something free, it is not free. Just, yeah, duh. That money comes from somewhere. Everything costs something. And they're probably taking money from other people in order to do that. Or they're printing more money and increasing inflation. Or they're taking your own tax money and giving it back to you in the form of inefficient services and calling it free. Point is, it's not free. But if you tell people they're getting free stuff, you're probably going to get more votes. So what about the relationship between the citizen and the government? Well, it's going to get better and better as far as the government's concerned because they get more votes and people like them more. So everybody's happy. So unfortunately, when you look at the racism issue, historically, racism has been a big issue, a big problem. When you look at who benefits from this, well, kind of the government benefits from having minority groups that are very reliant on them. What about the effect on the individual and their relation to the government? Well, usually it draws these minority groups to support the government. So will we have more racism in the future or is this just going to completely go away? Unfortunately, we will probably have more in the future. Objectively, that's the way it looks. Another one where morally, I think most people would actually agree on this, that that is just completely wrong. That is very immoral and that should not happen. But realistically, when you look at this, again, unfortunately, that's just the way it is. If you look at the history of it, you look at who benefits, you look at the effect it has, that's just the way it is. Sucks, but that's the case. That's it. I'm wrapping up here. This has been a packed episode. Hopefully it has been beneficial. I am sorry if I completely pissed you off about some of these ideas. That is not the goal. I have my own personal views and I am not trying to push them on anybody. The point is to get away from that, to get away from trying to convince somebody on a moral basis of I'm right and you're wrong, or this is right and this is wrong, 
or whatever the case may be, looking at the surface level aspect. The point is to just give some examples of how do we really look at these issues if we are trying to actually benefit, to actually learn something, to actually get somewhere. What you got to look behind that surface level. You've got to get past a moral argument. You've got to get to the root issues and the root causes and the root consequences. That's what you have to focus on. However, in today's society, that's really hard when you have the PC culture and an emotions-based culture. It makes it very hard to talk about this stuff. It makes it very hard to debate it. And when you don't have intellectual debates going on over these topics in this way among common people, then we, as common people, are going to be much easier to manipulate by those who want to push certain agendas. And that is not always the government. That is nonprofits. That is foundations. That is uh, all kinds of groups. Uh, Plenty of mainly rich and powerful that fund all this stuff. But the point is that we are kind of defenseless, and we fall for this all the time, And it is not a good thing. So, at least maybe you can be aware of it, and maybe you can start to focus the way you think and the way you talk and the way you conduct conversations and debates and discussions amongst people you know. Maybe you can start to change that a little bit and get away from these more fallacial arguments. We probably have to cover fallacies on some episode because that has a lot to do with it as well. Yeah, there's so much. So I'm going to cover a lot of these other aspects in the educational episode that will be two episodes from now, I guess. If you come back next time, hopefully you do, we will cover our financial state. And this is going to be State of the Union, mainly America. I actually had a request that I saw today that someone was asking for me to be a little more international in my coverage because they apparently do not live in America and it is hard for them to relate to the things I've talked about. And I hear you. I got that. I'm sure there are other people that feel that way. I, there's listeners in places like Croatia and Singapore and all over the place. I honestly have no idea why you're listening to this, but thank you very much. I really appreciate it. That's a very good thing. Um, but the point is, I will try to get there. But the reality is that These issues are not isolated to America. I use America because I live in America, and I know America, and that's the easiest examples for me, and those are the ones that I know, and the majority of the listeners are in the United States. However, we have many listeners that aren't, and the point is that these things are not isolated to America. You've got this PC culture all around the world. It's probably actually worse in Europe than it is in America. Same with the socialism versus libertarian mentalities of the group versus the individual. That is also more extreme in European countries because they are much more towards the socialist side and they don't have the heritage that America has of the libertarian view. And so basically a lot of the stuff we've covered has international themes and they do exist, but I will try in the future to be a a little more aware of that aspect. However, next week will be about the state of the United States and the state of the union as far as money is concerned, finances are concerned, the economy is concerned, 
you know, where where are we? What's going on? Right now, as I record this, we've had some major market swings in the stock market. You know, the yield curve recently inverted. What does that mean? We have crazy amounts of debt. Like, what's going on? The student debt loan bubble and everybody's financing everything. You know, what what effect does all this stuff have? We talked about the Federal Reserve. We talked about fractional reserve banking. We've talked about the fiat money system in general worldwide, what effect does this have? That's what we'll discuss next time. Please look at the show notes to get our links for the website for more information, resources, things like that, an outline of future episodes. Look at the Patreon page, especially if you want to support us financially. That would be extremely appreciated. You can do contributions for, I think it's $4 a month. You get bonus content that I publish on there. Um, the other one is our Twitter page. We've got at FoundationsPC on Twitter. That one's fun, interesting, entertaining, I guess. Um, we also have an email address. So if you have any requests, any comments, then please email them. Send them to me. The email address is in the show notes. So just look at it. Click on it. Go there. Send me something. I will probably respond to you. I will probably try to incorporate it, depending on what it is. The last thing would be to please rate and review the podcast, if you don't mind. That is extremely appreciated. It really helps us out. So if you haven't done that yet, click on the star review. Hopefully it's five stars, but it does not have to be. That is not a requirement. If you are willing and able to leave a review as well, that would be greatly appreciated too. That helps us out. That way when people are looking at the podcast and wonder if they want to listen to it or not, they can actually hear someone else's opinion on whether they liked it or not, what it's about, whatever the case may be. Say whatever you want to say. It's fine. If you have major complaints, I would prefer that you email them to me first before you post them, but hey, go for it. Whatever you want to do. So again, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support of all kinds. I am out of here. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.